Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hope you had a lovely Memorial Day weekend, everybody. I'm going to keep this short so you can uh, get right into hearing me struggle through sleep deprivation at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland for this live episode with two fantastic guests. Uh, just to very quickly, want to uh, throw a shout out to my partners, Laughable, for uh, helping people connect with comedians and comedians connecting with fans. Please check out their app and enjoy this episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hey everybody, welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Now you're overdoing it. You just, you guys, you just overdid it. I pre- that was very generous of you. I appreciate that. My name is Shane Moss. I am a stand-up comedian. I've been a comedian for 13 years. Um, super, super successful. And uh, <laughs> I uh, and I started this podcast uh, a few years ago um, as uh, as a it's, this is kind of a science podcast. Um, it's definitely the focus is definitely much more on talking about insanely interesting things than it is like trying to get laugh a minute wackiness. Um, and uh, so we always have incredible uh, thought provoking conversations and you're going to learn a lot and we're going to open things up for questions um, in a little while. So as we're talking and if you have something like Wait, I'm confused. You can raise your hand like you're in class, and hopefully I'll, I'll see you. And um, when we do that, I'll just have you come up 
uh, here and talk into the mic. Um, and uh, but yeah, we're we're going to have uh, a lot of fun. I, I've been doing the podcast for two and a half years, and we now have about fifty, sixty thousand listeners a week, and um, and it's. It was a little passion project that turned into this really kind of amazing thing. It's I, I kind of like it more than my uh, stand-up career, actually. So so I really appreciate you guys coming out. But within, with that, today we're going to be talking um, a, a lot about uh, some interesting ideas of some evolutionary underpinnings of both leadership and suicide actually, uh, laugh a minute, like I said, we're going to have some chuckles about killing yourself, um, and, uh, and I have two fantastic uh, guests for you today from the Washington State University, they are PhD candidates in, um, in evolutionary anthropology, please welcome Kristen Syme and, uh, oh, I did... Zach Garfield, everybody, please. I, I have a friend, Michael Garfield, who was a past guest on the show, and I knew I was going to screw that up. But anyway, and hi to Michael Garfield, if you're listening. Um, so, first off, uh, Kristen, can you talk a little bit about, uh, about your work? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I'm a PhD candidate. I conducted my master's research um, studying suicide in the ethnographic record, so studying suicide um, in uh, various cultures. Um, I tested multiple models of suicidal behavior from an evolutionary perspective against the ethnographic record. Um, and we found support for two different models of suicidal behavior. Um, one is the inclusive fitness model, which basically contends that... Um, oh, can you hold on sorry. one second? So uh, can you just explain a little bit about why... Uh, why, why it's kind of confusing. Like the idea of, uh, obviously we're trying to pass our genes on, so what is the point of killing yourself? Why would you do that? Because when you're dead, you're yeah. not passing genes on. Yeah, so it seems counterintuitive, right? That there might be um, uh, an argument for suicidal behavior from an evolutionary perspective because um, people often end up dead, which is, you know, not doesn't really seem like a good way of passing on your genes, but... There are various reasons. I mean, you know, so, uh, evolutionary natural selection doesn't always um, select for survival, per se. I mean, look at black widow spiders. Um, look at um, risky behavior and uh, male-male competition. Actually, talk about black widow spiders <laughs> quick, because they're awesome. Um, well, the male spider uh, not kind of got the short end of the stick there. Um, so the female eats the male spider, and the female... Um, gains those nutrients from Yeah, the ladies! Woo! You know, if only, if only humans had that. <laughs> but the reason it benefits the male, the reason that it exists, is because that benefits his offspring, the um, organisms which share 50% of his DNA. So that's how that gene, those genes can be passed on because uh, there's a 50% shot that those, their offspring share those qualities. And that's really what the inclusive fitness model is, which is what um, I tested, one of the models we tested um, among humans, where um, an, an individual might um, kill themselves in a situation where they have low, low reproductive potential and are um, incurring costs on their close genetic kin. Um. That's just one of the, that's actually not the model I like, though. <laughs> What's the model that you like? So, um, 
Oh, there's a different model developed by uh, my advisor, Ed Hagen, uh, that sees suicidal behavior as a costly signal of need, specifically non-lethal suicidal behavior. And actually, if you look at the data um, in the West and in many parts of the world, suicide attempts far outnumber suicide completions, especially among uh, adolescents and young adults. Among um, adolescent young adult females, it's about 400 suicide attempts for every one completion. Um, that's not to say that, that, that's not to trivialize suicidal behavior. Really what we're saying is that, well, in what situations might you actually risk your own life? Um, perhaps in situations where uh, the individual faces a particular fitness threat, some particular harm that would impact their reproductive potential. Um, physical abuse and sexual exploitation are some of the major risk factors for suicide attempts. And that is, uh, that can definitely affect your, your reproductive potential, um, your well-being. Um, so it's really these types of situations um, we're arguing that might, the, an individual might try to send an honest signal of need to social partners that they need help um, having this, uh, con um, this harm removed from their environment. Can you explain what you mean by an honest signal? So yes, uh, well, <laughs> that gets into all the, the whole literature. Um, but basically, um, so like speech for instance is a cheap signal. It's really very, costing me very little to say all of this right now. Um, so if- And you could be making it all up. And I, maybe I am making this all up. We don't know. Um, so someone could be like, this is, you know, like every other day or so with my friends, I'm like, ah, eh, might as well end it. But that, yeah. that's not, and they're like, ah, eh, I go And someone again. might say, look, wow, they must be going through a hard time. But if someone actually tried to take your, like, whoa, like, I did not realize you were having such a hard time, it maybe might um, take people, and this is actually something we're looking at, is the social response to suicidal behavior that people haven't really looked at yet is that do people take more notice? Do people say, whoa, back up, I didn't know that you were going through this. I'd, maybe you told me before and I didn't believe you uh, for whatever reason, but now that you had this, this suicidal gesture, now I'm gonna look more carefully at what's going on in your life. Um, do, when you're studying uh, the evolutionary underpinnings of suicide, does it ever just seem like why even bother? Like, what is the point of, of, of life? Of, it's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to end all this research right now. Um, can, so now for a complete change of, uh, of pace, and, uh, and believe me, once, uh, once we, we start talking about this other completely separate topic, that's going to seem like a huge tangent. Um, we will make sure and tie everything together in a bit. But Zach, can you talk a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I focus on the evolution of leadership and leadership in small-scale societies more specifically. And um, My master's thesis was very similar to Kristen's methodology, so I did a cross-cultural study testing a couple different theoretical models against the ethnographic record. So um, kind of the idea behind that methodology is we have these theoretical models that people put together and think say something meaningful about these topics, but so what I've done, and what Kristen did as well, is go through this ethnographic record and see, do we see support for these theoretical models in small-scale society in this you know, very detailed record of information on small-scale cultures. Um, so one of the models I tested in my, in my thesis there was the dominance prestige model, which suggests that there's these two different strategies an individual can use 
to attain social influence. One of them is dominance, so it's kind of homologous or analogous to animal dominance hierarchies where you use aggression and fear and intimidation to uh, basically coerce people to being subservient to you. And then prestige, which is suggested by some people to be a unique human innovation where we have you know, symbolic culture, we can compete in pro-social or in ways that benefit the group, so like being a good hunter or being a good um, shaman or a good uh, resource provider, um, rather than just you know, fighting it out every time. So these are these two distinct strategies that um, people might use in different contexts. And again, kind of the, the thing you're trying to answer is, why is this, ha why, why are people, so if you're admiring somebody else and you're giving someone your admiration and attention, why are you giving them, uh, this is a, a kind of incurring a cost of your time and possibly resources or you might be giving offerings or whatever, or modern society money to see um, you know, a live podcast or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and basically you're, you're here right now uh, to see to see this and potentially you'll gain some information, but I'm not necessarily, you may have paid to come in here, um, but I'm not kind of scratching your back. Uh, so uh, there, there's no um, reciprocity. And also uh, we're not, um, if we were all related, this would make a little more sense, but, but this is kind of what you're trying to understand. What is the genetic benefit to you guys being here at this podcast right now is what we're trying to figure out. Exactly, and the original authors of part of this model have suggested that it's to enhance cultural transmission. So we learn about important cultural uh, skills and domains from various people, but if you know who is the best to learn from, you can basically target your learning towards that individual. So get really close to the best comedian and hang out with him a lot, and you'll learn a lot about comedy sort of thing. Another idea suggests that by providing a service for the group, um, you know, helping them out, helping solve problems, then the group will then provide you with this prestige, which has other social and reproductive benefits as well. Um, but what we think, what my advisor Ed Hagen and I are kind of working on is this idea that uh, it's actually in your interest to defer to someone who has uh, expertise and special knowledge that can make uh, decisions that will sort of optimally benefit everyone. So even though people have different conflicts, um, if, a, if a strong, skilled, equipped leader can decide on a course of action that will maximally benefit everybody, sort of a utilitarian uh, process of decision-making, then that's in your interest to defer to them, let them sort of take the, take the lead. That seems like two different things that compared to, so say you're in a... Uh, work environment and having having someone that has a particular skill set of of supervising and taking charge is a little different than say idolizing a uh, sports player Michael Jordan or whatever it might be and so those are kind of the prestige thing and the leadership that almost seems like two different like like chimps um, juvenile chimps will male chimps will like sneak around and try to watch adults mating so they can kind of figure out how to like, oh, that's how you do it. Um, which, which is uh, my excuse when I've been caught <laughs> peeping on people like, I'm learning right now. This is my education. Um, but, but aren't those two very different things? Yeah, they definitely are. So that's a good point. And I mean, a lot of this is rooted in, um, you know, 
primate attention structures. And basically that's kind of, rather than mapping out a whole linear dominance hierarchy, if you pay attention to, pay attention to the individuals paying attention to individuals, you can basically map out that same hierarchy. So um, attention structures in, in primate society can identify the socially dominant individuals. And then we see that too in human societies, so in various human groups. By keeping the attention on yourself, that's a strategy to achieving a position of leadership. Um, have you noticed any gender differences in any, because it seems so in, in chimps, and we aren't chimps, and I know we're in Portland, and there's no, we are, there's no male, there's no female here, we all, we're all just people, <laughs> but, um, but if you look at, if you look at chimps, um, you'll see uh, a, a female will, um, you know, the mother will have some great tool skill that she uses to get ants out of a hill or whatever, and, the, and her daughters sit there and pay attention and, and uh, pick up this skill really well, and the males have a harder time doing this because they're off wrestling and fighting, and, um, which is, would be called ADHD um, in our modern society. But, but that, it seems to me that that has, later on in life, for them, has... Uh, that might be a little more important if fighting over a mate or whatever it might be is is getting you higher status and and passing your genes on that, that might make it, it seems like males tend to be a little more status oriented and and females not quite as much a little more affiliative in, in non-human primate species anyway or most of them um, so are there are there differences in humans well, yes, there are, and to kind of get at your point there, both yes and no. So, I mean, males are definitely more agonistic or more, you know, physically confrontational. Um, but female, in many, like monkeys, you know, like macaques, for example, um, there are really strong female matra lines that get really territorial and use physical aggression, you know, when needed to defend resources for the matra line. So this kind of idea that females are... Um, not adapted for physical competition is really not uh, justified by the primate evidence. Um, Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a great, I, I it's a great point because there are many uh, <laughs> evolutionary psychologists who are suggesting that, well, females need to preserve their physical integrity so they shouldn't be um, adapted to engage in physical confrontation. And, yeah, I, I, I mean, to me, I'm not like, oh, females aren't capable of fighting. I'm more like females are above fighting they're, they're just like right. fighting's a dumb thing to do and you, but there is a sort of a unique component to their aggression and that females tend to use indirect aggression and gossip, gossip. so like ed hagen and nicole has gossip they, yeah <laughs> I, like that. I, mean, I was in the future just talk closer to the mic as well. um yeah. what they've coined informational warfare so females are competing within the group sorry informational warfare informational okay. warfare so Basically gossip and ridicule and ostracizing people. But that's really important for within the group, slut shaming. (laughs) This is what's going on in small scale societies. Oh, I I thought you were going to say in chimpanzees that there's a lot of (laughs) slut shaming happening. (laughs) No. There might be. Might be. It might be all that's happening. How would you know? Maybe that's all they're saying to one another is calling each other sluts, and we just can't understand. Jane Goodall would know, I'm sure. 
Um, so, so in the, so in small scale in small scale societies, there's there's a fair amount of slut shaming. Indeed, uh, indeed. This is so humans just have. This is like a That's, very I think that long. That's my research too. Like, um, so some women were, you know, they committed some kind of sexual taboo before they um, either killed themselves or attempted attempted to kill themselves. More so than men. Men were more likely to murder somebody. Women were more likely to transgress in terms of a sexual taboo. I keep forgetting that you're going to bring down the conversation uh, every time I go to you. Um, <laughs> but that's fascinating because the, the idea is, I mean, I, I think a popular idea in our modern society is that um, most of this is a cultural influence in, in this uh, a lot of the slut shaming stuff is is just culturally imposed, and um, but if these small scales, if the, it sounds like this is a big part of our evolutionary history, though. Which is not to say it's even right before or wrong. Pants? It's not to say it's right. It's definitely wrong, but uh, I mean, obviously, because people end up um, attempting suicide, it's right. not a good thing. But clearly, something's going on here, um, at least in terms of it's cross-culturally common. It's, it could also be cultural too. I mean, it's all, you know, they're all tied together. Biology, biology and culture are tied together. What was slut shaming like before miniskirts, though? Like, what, what do they, what kind of shaming goes on? Uh, you actually sleep with someone's husband, I guess. I don't know. It, in small scale societies, have you, it, has there been things observed? Are there papers of, of like, anthropological evidence for here here's like specific things that happen in a community oh i mean well it's, there's a lot yeah we call um, it paternity uncertainty or also what we sometimes say is mama's baby daddy's maybe yeah um so a woman definitely knows it's her baby because that's obvious <laughs> guys not so much um, Especially in patriarchal societies where men kind of rule everything, their concerns end up taking interest over women's concerns, at least on the cultural, uh, on a broader level. So um, where women are disempowered, their concerns are kind of subservient to male concerns of, say, paternity certainty. Seems like slut shaming can kind of backfire a little bit. If, if you're like, if you're at a bar and you, um, and some lady says to a guy like, oh, she's a slut, the guy might be like, oh, really? That's interesting. It might not, <laughs> it might, it might not convey the, so, might not be the best strategy. But that, so that's, I guess, the difference of short-term strategy. So he probably might want to sleep with her for that night. That'll kind of, he'll mm. get laid that night. But maybe he doesn't want to have kids with her because then he'll be unsure if those kids are his. So... <laughs> I'm, go I'm going to get off of slut shaming because <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to get angry messages from people. Um, I, back to leadership. How, how do leadership roles work in, in uh, smaller hunter-gatherer societies? Isn't it just like the shamans are just the guys that can handle the most amount of drugs and then they put them in charge? Isn't that essentially... To an extent, to an extent, but there are... <laughs> There are usually like distinct sort of domains of leadership. So you have your shaman, who is sort of the religious, spiritual leader, who's yes, has the good drugs. Um, there's usually a defense leader who might only have authority if there's actually a need for, uh, you know, for a sort of military defense. And there's usually a broader socio-political leader. 
and who may have varying levels of influence, um, but usually the critical thing is they only maintain their position through the graces of the community. So they have to rely on techniques of persuasion and being sort of verbose and knowledgeable and having expertise. Um, if they get too overly assertive, if they get too uh, aggressive, uh, hunter-gatherers will do what we always say, vote with their feet, and we'll just pack up and take off. Um, they can depose the guy, or if it's really bad, they're not hesitant to kill them in many cases. Um, just get rid of them if they're not doing a good job. So before I ask the... I have a question to set up another question that both of you can answer. Um, just because before we get a little too carried away with uh, evolutionary theory, one of the concerns we were just talking about backstage is that and I, I, evolutionary psychology and biology are kind of my favorite thing to talk. I, I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, but the more you learn about it, the more that you realize not everything has necessarily an evolutionary function. Sometimes you can take evolutionary theory a little too far and some things just have uh, there's byproduct effects and can you talk about that a little bit well, or did I just sum it up perfectly <laughs> did I just crush it right there so I mean everything is ultimately evolutionary in some sense it's either an adaptation um, a byproduct of an adaptation or it is used to be an adaptation but is mismatched to the modern environment um, so that, like, suicide, for instance, you know, some people will say, well, why does suicide have to have an evolutionary purpose? It doesn't. It could be a byproduct. But we're just asking the question of, does it? Um, and people kind of freak out. It makes, you know, it makes them uncomfortable. But I guess that's what science is supposed to do. And part of the way we address those questions is, like, identify the costs and the benefits. So if there's, like, a behavioral feature or a physiological feature that we can observe, um, if it has been selected for over evolutionary history, then the benefits must have outweighed the costs. So we need to identify what are those costs, what are those benefits, and can we model how the benefits do in fact outweigh the costs? So now I just thought of five more questions. First, I wanna ask, are there gender differences in, I mean, not just suicide rates, because you said that males tend to um, be more likely to murder someone and females are more likely to kill themselves. Um, super, super depressing. Uh, <laughs> again, comedy! And, um, but are there gender differences in um, why suicide is... is in, because... This is what I want to ask, because I've, as, as someone that, uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before, chronic depression is like my thing. It's, it's like I don't have OCD or anxiety or anything. It's just chronic depression is my jam. I just really get down with it and, uh, and have for a very long time. I have a lot of uh, anhedonia and, and just kind of, uh, every, everything seems fairly meaningless to me. And I, I'm not sure that I'm interpreting that incorrectly, in fact. Um, but but uh, the, the idea of, and this, isn't, this is not necessarily a novel idea, this is something you hear people talk about, maybe in men more, of suicide as just a backup plan. You can take these incredible risks in life and kind of go for broke, and I'm like, well, and then if it goes the way of broke, then you can... It, you you have a way out rather than like rather spending than your life in prison or whatever it might so be. So that's actually there's a third model of suicidal behavior that's kind of 
was uh, came out of the bargaining model, which is the costly apology model. So it's kind of a quirkier, very special case of the bargaining model where you commit some sort of transgression and, uh, you know, could be murder, could be some sexual taboo, uh, like adultery or whatever. And, um, and then your, their, your group, the people who are around you, uh, get really pissed off at you and want to ostracize you or slut shame you or whatever, um, maybe put you in prison. And so it's sort of similar to the bargaining model where it's, a, it's an honest, costly signal, except in this case you're saying, um, I'm sorry, and I want to make up for what I did, and I will repay you by, with the rest of my lifetime, not doing those behaviors again. Sorry, I fucked everybody, guys. Like, I really feel bad about it. Like, those are just words. And so you need something a little more costly to show that exactly. you like, really I'm stop saying, boning Like, saying all sorry is often not enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, going, back, uh, going back to some leadership things, I, I was thinking in preparing for this, one of the things, I'm not a big sports guy, um, Sorry, people listening, and you're welcome, Portland. Um, and I, uh, <laughs> I think about what, what is the evolutionary function, and again, not everything has to have an evolutionary reason and function, but you're, it's a bunch of like out-of-shape, middle-aged guys worshipping children, playing a children's game that they're not, it's too late. They've all, they're past their prime. There is absolutely no way that they're going to be the VIP of the Super Bowl next year. They're not, they're not learning any valuable skills necessarily for, for their lives. So why, why idolize... Um, so, I mean, it's one thing to idolize like a billionaire and think and think, well, one day I'll, I'll be able to get my hands on a bu- uh, enough resources if I really pay attention to what they're doing. But you're not, if you're 60 years old, you're not like, oh, one day I'm going to be a 20-year-old. They, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so I guess what that kind of makes me think of and kind of this fascination or obsession with sports really, I think, taps into our just need for group identity and sort of group psychology. Um, there's actually been some really interesting research, I'll probably butcher some of the details, but you know, for, the longest, for a long period over human evolutionary history, pretty much everybody you interacted with more or less looked like you, um, wherever you were living in that specific geography. Um, so what a lot of evolutionary psychologists have suggested is that you know, the racism we experience in life today, or that we can observe in the world today, is somewhat evolutionary novel, but there was distinct ethnic markers throughout human evolutionary history that people tapped into and developed really, really strong ethnic identities around um, the sort of features that were common to their group compared to others. And so the research that some evolutionary psychologists have done have been manipulating sort of profile panels of individuals by uh, different ethnic backgrounds, but also colors of jersey. And what they found is that people really tap into the colors of the jersey in terms of identity and bias, more so independent of any racial or ethnic diversity. So I think in the context of this, it just really kind of taps into our need for a small um, in-group psychology. And then if you get to like, you know, hooligan, uh, you know, football, soccer fanatics, just that between group aggression just comes bustling out. Uh, But I mean, 
I'm from Wisconsin, and Packers are definitely the most important thing. I mean, that's, that's not just my bias. That's uh, it, I, I've talked about this on the uh, on the podcast before. There was a <laughs> there's reports from a couple different people that were on the original Planet of the Apes, and they have what are the different apes? They had like orangutan and chimp, and I don't know what they had three or four different species, um, and. And there's reports from the actors that at, at lunch during craft services, within a couple weeks, the chimps were sitting together and the orangutans sitting, just based on their stupid costumes. They were, they were like, these actors that had been friends are like, I can't sit with that chimp anymore. And it's insane how quickly this, and there's, there's studies where you can have people just arbitrarily you give people two different colored t-shirts or something like that and just have them mingle in a room and then after a while uh, they'll, they'll just segregate themselves based on the color of their t-shirt and it's like how, uh, how I can't, um, I, I feel a little uh, uneasy in Portland because I don't have any tattoos. Um, it, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm in the out group. Um, but I'm white, so hey, Portland. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, check. Good. That's the most important thing in Portland, in this ultra progressive city, is that you're white. Um, <laughs> so, can you talk? Uh, can you guys both talk a little bit about your uh, about group selection? theory and kind of the, <laughs> am I, is that a can of worms? Uh, yeah, a, so, l- a so, bit. Because there, it's a very controversial thing. If it, we're supposed to have these selfish genes and then how, how does, because you, this is kind of what you're mentioning, right, Zach, is a little bit of uh, like teetering, uh, tiptoeing into group selection. When I talked to you on the phone the other day, I was kind of surprised. Maybe I just misinterpreted it because most um most people uh, on the evolutionary side of things that I talk to stay very far away from group selection. So uh, can you just talk a little bit about where the climate is at in, in your field? Yeah. So group selection is the idea that uh, some behavior or trait could be selected for for the good of the group. So like if your population is getting too close to carrying capacity for the amount of resources available, then you should not reproduce because it's, for the, it's in the group's interest that you should not. That's the idea. But that's been largely discredited, even going back to like the mid-70s, because for that to happen, groups have to go extinct a lot, and individuals can't move from one group to another. So you would just take your uh, sort of incompetent genes to the other group, and everything would be getting mixed. And we do see a lot of between-group migration, and groups tend to not go extinct as often as would need be for group selection to happen. Yeah, but how do you explain such generosity in our current administration? It's like all these billionaires so thoughtful and like really looking out for the little guy. You know, like how do you... <laughs> it seems like they're like, you know what? We have enough resources and we need to spread this out a little more and be a little more careful. With. I mean, it's pretty clear that people are more interested in their own kin than they yeah. are a stranger. I mean, we see that all the time. Uh, it's, 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 we see it so much it's normal. We don't even second guess that we'd help our own children before we'd help a stranger on the street. Um, I don't get along with my grandparents very well. <laughs> are you your maternal or your paternal grandparents? 
Yeah, how much paternity certainty was there? <laughs> yeah, yeah but this is an interesting thing. Uh, you, you should talk about that. Uh, the, uh, we, we've talked about this briefly on the podcast, um, uh, I think a couple years ago it was, uh, the, the idea of, uh, let's see if I can remember. So, so your, your grandmother on your mom's side um, is, is the one that is the most, uh, knows that um, you're her grandson because she had your mom and knows that, and then your mom, or, and then my mom had me, and she knows that, whereas my grandfather is a little less certain of that because something else could have happened uh, in there, and there could have been some cuckolding. And, um, and, and then your, your, dad's, your dad's mom is on the like same amount of certainty as... Uh, she, I'm going to let you guys anything. take over. Your dad's mom doesn't know anything. And, and, and so, <laughs> so, so there's all these interesting things. So, so the idea is, is that potentially your mom's mom, your grandmother on your mother's side should have more invested in you because she knows for sure that, and the other ones don't. Isn't that fucking fascinating? And that's actually but, what we find in, in Western culture. Uh, hold on a second. By, by, by show of hands, and, and then I'll articulate the count verbally, how, how many of you have a better relationship with um, your grand, or, or had, or whatever, uh, a better relationship with the grandmother on your father's side? That's four of you. How many of you had a better relationship with the grandmother on your mother's side? That's way more of you. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah. uh, so now I forgot what we were talking about. I'm so fascinated by... Once I, once I start talking about grandmothers, guys, I, good luck shutting me up. <laughs> I do have a point there, though. Um, so to the paternity uh, certainty thing, in cultures that are patrilocal and there's a lot of regulation on women's sexual behavior, I'm not 100% sure about this and I haven't seen any studies, but people, there does seem to be more investment from the paternal side because they are more sure because women are so highly regulated. Sexual. Wait, say that again. Did you guys understand that? Yeah? Uh, <laughs> just <you>. My bad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I have severe ADHD, by the way. What is the evolutionary? Uh, okay. Um, so to answer your question a little bit better about group yeah. selection, though. So what is called today or now is multi-level selection. Um, and leadership is actually one domain in which some scholars today are suggesting that there could be some group selection slash multi-level selection pressures at play and that groups that have a better leader do tend to succeed, uh, on average, uh, are more likely to succeed and prosper than groups that have not so great of a leader. Uh, but at the same time, you don't really even need to invoke multi-level, group-level selection ideas because as long as all individuals are benefiting from the leader, that is what is important. It's so still about the selfish gene. Exactly. Being passed on. Yeah. Yeah, we were just uh, we were talking about Robert Sapolsky, and I I, I tried to have uh, my my last guest um, or a recent guest by the time this comes out, uh, Robert Sapolsky has uh, sometimes talks about how so how do you get this uh, how can you have altruism with these 
selfish genes. And um, the idea is, is if, if an island is created, if, if, there's, if people get separated somehow by a river or something like that, all of a sudden now there's this island of people off by themselves, there's going to be a lot of incest. And then once there's a lot of incest, uh, you start um, cooperating more because now you have more shared genes within that island of people. And then if eventually the you know, river dries up or whatever, X number of generations later, and then they get reintegrated because of that cooperation, though, uh, be, because normally, normally to, to be altruistic, the, it's just too easy to cheat somebody and, and to be taken advantage of if you're altruistic, so you can't take that chance. But if, if um, <laughs> because of incest, um, it, it, incest might very well be responsible for uh, our altruism and generosity and charity, so, and certainly why the South will rise again. Um, <laughs> they're building whole duck dynasties down there, in fact. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and so once it's reintegrated, if this small population of people is, if this cooperation has this mechanism that is more beneficial than all of these other selfish people just looking out for themselves, then that, that culture, that kind of, um, that, that, way of uh, that way of living will, will take off. And, and then now people that are, are driven to be selfish it's now in their best interest to cooperate. Um, so, I, it, is it sort of is that sort of along the lines of of kind of what you're saying of how how these cultural um, what do you call them cultural um, I'm forgetting. Models. Yeah, uh, no, that's not the not the word that I'm looking for at all. Um, <laughs> ah, I, I, but. Yeah, yeah. So, so in this in this uh, multi-level selection, it is it just that we're stumbling across some sort of strategy that happens to work with a group of people, and then and then culture like like mimetics in a way. If you go, hey, everyone, uh, we're gonna start two religions. One of them is. Uh, no one has sex anymore, and then the other one is everyone bees fruitful and multiplies for God, and then you you go forward multiple generations, and the one that said be fruitful and multiply has way more practitioners than the one that died off a thousand years ago because they stopped having sex. Well, that's what happened to the Shakers. They like disappeared because they weren't allowed to have sex. What are the Shakers? So Haven't they- heard of them. See this. Really proves the point. Like 19th century American cult stuff. <laughs> That's. I'm not like an expert on. It. I just know that it happened. That they didn't have sex and they don't exist anymore. Yeah, that is. That is the wrong way to run a cult for sure. That's. You're supposed to be like a really creepy dude that monopolizes all the Charles women, Manson. and that's how. Yeah, that's how you spread your genes out the most, and. Um, so is leadership at all like Charles Manson, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Yeah, so Charles Manson... It's, that's a softball question, <laughs> by the way. Not my leader. So what I'm, what I'm asking is how, how are... So if you have, like, 
so take, take multiple societies. You have a hunter-gatherer society, you have a, cap, a very capitalistic society, and you have um, like a socialist kind of society, you have a areas of government where there's like a very strict kind of social order, and then you have areas that it's a little more free. Um, how, how, do, how do these leadership ship traits get interpreted in these different um, in these different forms and cultures is com- uh, you know from communist to capitalist to hunter gatherer does that make any sense that question yeah so i guess a big component of it there is the degree to which there's like inherited wealth and status differences and the degree to which resources can be monopolized by any one individual so in hunter gatherer culture um, everybody has equal access to all resources and pretty much equal access to most uh, skill sets that are needed to just be successful, raise your family, and be happy. Um, So you're not really reliant on a leader to have access to resources and things like that. So you you have freedom to basically move about, bail if you need to, et cetera. Um, But in stratified societies where you basically, you're born into a social level based on who your parents are, uh, you don't have that ability. And then when resource can be monopolized by the people who do have social control, you're basically dependent upon them. Um, so that creates huge differences in dynamics in terms of leader-follower relationships. Uh, I figured out how to phrase what I was actually trying to ask okay. much, much better. So in a hunter-gatherer society where you have, say you have, some, or, or chimps or whatever it might be, say, say you have a, um, no, let's go back to humans. Say say you have like this kind of shaman character or this alpha male character or whatever it might be where people are like, oh, that guy's really good at that. And, and this is kind of evolutionary benef- uh, evolutionarily beneficial to learn whatever skills that he has or, or to respect this top dog, the guy that can kick the most ass or be the funniest guy in the room or whatever it might be. Um, Later on, once cultures get much, much bigger and more complicated, this idea of that we need a like the idea that we need a president is one of the silliest fucking ideas in the world. I think, and, and this isn't just because we have the silliest fucking president that there is right now. I, I've thought this since well before. Uh, like I, I was fine with Obama and everything, but it, but it's just like why why would you have one person in charge? It's so silly. Why wouldn't you have like a parliamentary? Why wouldn't you have more people kind of working together to make decisions? Why would why would you put one man or woman or anyone in charge of such a massive thing? And to me, it seems like this evolutionary leftover where we just have it in our heads like. Yep, there's always one person at the top, and that's what works the best. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think this is a good example of sort of evolutionary mismatch, where our evolved leader-follower psychology is really tuned to having a singular sort of um, person at the top of the hierarchy. And there's evidence of that, too, in the way uh, elections work. I mean, the taller candidate almost always tends to win, especially in the context of increased uh, external threats, um, which... Why does that matter? It doesn't matter if our president is 6'6 or 5'5, um, but our psychologies are adapted to tune into those cues of what might be social dominance 
and prefer those types of leaders. This calls democracy into question, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Expand on that. Well, uh, like if people are winning because they're taller, what? Talking to the mic just oh, a little bit. If people, if we can track like just these really arbitrary things of like why people are winning and they're not helpful at all for our society, we should probably stop. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, but I look at much of modern society, I'm like, we should probably stop. <laughs> but at the same time, maybe they are helpful in some ways. I mean, it's possible that uh, in some small group interactions that maybe a more physically dominant individual might be able to... But the bigger thing is, what is he going to do with the nuclear codes? <laughs> That's a bigger concern. It's, I'm not worried about it, personally. Um, <laughs> uh, terrified would be a better word. Um, let's talk a little bit about... I'm going to open this up to a question um, in a moment, if you guys have some. But I wanted to ask about some of the... How do you study some of these... Is, Zach, you were talking backstage about how um, you put a bunch of people in a room and leaders will just naturally arise. Can you talk a little bit about that? So yeah, there are a number of, I think I mentioned earlier, but we see leadership in almost all cultures, and well, in all cultures, in many different social groups, but uh, psychologists have done a number of these, what they call leaderless group experiments, where you bring a variety of people um, into a, a room. It's usually it's psychology undergraduates, uh, that's the people psychologists like to study. Um, and you have them do some sort of task, like a cooperative task. Um, one good example is like the, they call it like the moon task. Like you're going to the moon, what are the essential equipment you need to bring? But it could be anything, just some sort of cooperative activity. Nobody has any previous experience with each other. Nobody is like designated to be the leader. It's just a group activity. And what you see is one leader tends to emerge almost in every circumstance. And you can think about this in the social groups you're a part of, too, and you see this all the time. Um, somebody emerges as a leader, and people tend to support that person, and it almost kind of happens just instinctively that you kind of know, oh, yeah, that person, they're going to be the leader now. So I'm gonna Well, kinda... I feel like in that case, it's going to be the nerd who's like, oh, I know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to And it might be dependent on context. Yeah, yeah, yeah very... Con- I, mean, I mean, someone might be like the... Very low ranking in their office position, you know, they might be working in the mailroom or whatever, but then they they go off to do um, the company softball league, and they're they're the VIP of uh, so so uh, so when they're playing softball, they might be the top uh, leader guy that everyone's looking up to, and then they go back to work on Monday, and and no one gives a fuck about them. Um, right. Uh, so so you can have the same person with the same traits in just a slightly different, well, I guess very different context. And so, so there's, not, there's not necessarily like born leaders. Uh, there's just some people are good at leading a particular thing and other people are... There does seem to be a genetic component to leadership. Heritable really? About 40% of the variation in leadership seems to be due to uh, genetic factors. And that could be based on personality, perhaps. Maybe there are certain personalities that are more uh, effective at at being a leader. So there is definitely a genetic component. How that is working is unclear. Wait, how are you you figuring that out? 
Uh, um, so not you, I mean uh, people. Yeah, heritability studies. Uh, they basically look at big samples of twins, monozygotic, which are identical twins, and then dizygotic, which are fraternal twins. And then you can look at twins that are reared together and twins that are not reared together. And there are these big, huge twin studies where they have all this data on twins. And you can look at um, how do like a leadership measure or leadership behavior vary among all these different sets of twins. And you can figure out the degree to which variation in leadership is attributed to genetic differences. It doesn't mean that like 40% of your genes... How do or, they operationalize leadership? Sorry. Um, they're probably using like a, a leader scale uh, like a leader inventory scale or something like that, but there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of heritability studies. Uh, yeah. I have to look at these studies. <laughs> yeah, that's huh. Born, fuck. I'm I'm just kind of pissed if there's born leaders because I'm like, eh, I didn't get that trait. Um, but uh, although I do have swarms of attractive people. Um, at my podcast. You got a lot of prestige. This, uh, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, guys, play along. It's for my listeners. There are 300 sexy people um, in this. Yeah. So I guess it, that might have been genetic. Um, does anyone have a question for Zach or Kristen or um, uh, about any of this stuff? Yeah. I have a question for Kristen about uh, evolution and suicide and how that relates to like environment, resource scarcity, and like the tension of survival. What made me think about that was I was thinking about Japan, where they have like an almost cultural protocol for suicide that's developed, and sort of how those correlations have been been studied. Good question. Um, I like that they have a protocol. It's just like... <laughs> oh, yeah, I see. Like falling on the sword and... Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant just like in restrooms or whatever. They'd be like, you know, if you're failing right now, step one, kill yourself. That's just our protocol. There's actually but, yeah, a lot I get, of I get what you're saying. Though. Yeah. Um, not just Japan. Well, actually, there's the sapoku. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sapoku in Japan up on the sword, but then there's also this, like, apparently this forest where people go to, and that's like part of a, there's like this whole cultural model of how you kill yourself in Japan. Um, there's a suicide forest? Yeah. yeah. Really? There's, wow. Like, a movie too, and they just really let weird. people go in there, knowing full well what they're... Well, some people go in there just to take a walk, and other people don't. Oh. <laughs> it's a lovely forest. It's, just, it's, you want to keep an eye on that forest, I think, is what I'm saying. But, but uh, to that question, though, um, so uh, for the inclusive fitness model, I mean, this is sort of tangentially related. Um, I, I can't speak to Japan. I think what's going on in, like, these modern industrial complex societies is not entirely clear what's going on. But what we did find, um, so for the inclusive fitness model, which is basically you're killing yourself to benefit your inclusive kin, who you might be a burden on if you have low reproductive potential and maybe you're, you're very ill, you're very sick, and you can't take care of yourself. Um, and that might be a big problem in harsh environments where provisioning of these non-productive members is a huge burden on everyone else. And actually what we found was that evidence for the inclusive fitness model actually increased with latitude, and it was much more common in places like the Arctic. Did you have something to say about suicide forest? Yeah. 
I was going to say that they do have uh, a sort of program to prevent it in the forest. Like, they're not like, hey, come here and kill yourself. Like, they try to prevent it from happening at this point. Oh, they do have people around yeah. <laughs> trying to yeah. keep an eye on. That's a, that's a tough park ranger job. <laughs> that really, like, ups the ante. Um, all right, anyone else? This is not a question, but um, one thing in terms of like the, the one leader thing. So you have, <laughs> obviously you have people who lead and that's one form, but then there's also the responsibility factor. So it's a nice thing to have one leader because you can blame it on that person. And the scapegoat factor works out. You can kill them or do whatever. If everything goes and shitty, sometimes they kill it's like you can just go, yeah, that too. But you can just like, that's like, okay, good. His fault, fuck it. You know, even if it's all of our fault, it's like, your, it's your problem. You're Jesus or whatever it is, you know, you fuck you. Um, but, okay, and then the second thing with the, the Japanese suicide, according to, I read a bo whole book about uh, Japanese relationship to the afterlife, traditionally, and ghosts. And so the, the, the ritual suicide supposedly has something to do with justice and revenge. Because if we kill you, then you're your ghosts, your ancestors will come after us. And so if there's a situation where it would be just for you to be killed, but we don't want to have to deal with your ancestors fucking with the rest of the society, so you kill yourself, then they don't fuck with us. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a justice, it's a because of the past. I have a comment, have I have a comment that. about that. Yeah, yeah. Because that came up a lot in the ethnographic record, especially in East Asia, where people kill themselves and then their ghosts come back, and not just in East Asia, also in Africa too. Um, your ghosts come back and haunt everybody. And for me, my opinion on this, is I think that this is a proxy for the bargaining model because what happens if someone you care about kills themselves, you feel a lot of guilt. And maybe you are going to see a lot of patterns in the world around you that are reminding you of the fact that you let this person down, you didn't help that person. And I think that's what's going on. That's my... Having uh, dreams, etc. Yeah, cetera. having dreams, like they're haunting you, you didn't do enough for them. Um, I think this could be a proxy for the fact that people do feel guilt uh, when someone they care about, or even just someone in their community who they didn't feel like they helped enough ended up um, killing themselves. I mean, I, and, and to his first point, I, I like the idea of, of uh, having someone to blame. Uh, you can, you know, if things aren't going your way, you can say like, oh, it's Democrats' fault or it's Republicans' fault or, you know, whoever's in charge right now or, or the Illuminati or whatever it might be. It, it's actually, conspiracy theorists have, usually have like a very, uh, they're not doing so well. Like they, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're often kind of, not not crushing it at life and 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 make up these really interesting ideas to blame these external things that could have some sort of a usefulness really for the leaders <laughs> for the leaders not you think the, well accountability for ineffective decision making is a essential component of leadership in small scale society and across human evolutionary history and to kind of get to your point like i don't think we really have that so much anymore or to the yeah, but if if you are, like, life is really difficult and chaotic and frustrating. And we're pattern and, seekers. What's that? We're pattern seekers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and if you, if instead of blaming yourself, which which might be completely invalid, like it, it 
oftentimes it's not someone's fault if they're failing. I, I wasn't. I didn't even mean that. Like, oh, this person's a loser or whatever. Uh, like you could have. I have like a friend that's a crazy conspiracy theorist, and it happened like after he got this disease that was out of his control, and and it kind of does seem like it could be a useful tool in a way to, ra- rather than blaming yourself for your own failings, if you're like, well, it, it, you know, it, it's this guy in charge, at least, at least you won't, maybe, maybe you won't give up. Um, and maybe you'll be like, oh yeah, so I've, I've struck out many times, but that's because uh, this leader was throwing curveballs. And if it's a problem so you it, can't it's handle, my... uh, that if you're, it's literally impossible for you to deal with on your own, um, you know, perhaps if you were just like, oh, okay, you just have this label in your mind of what that's about, then you don't have to spend so much time thinking about it, and you can focus on other things too. Yeah. Um, I, I saw someone else had. Yeah, come on up. You guys always ask. I've done the. I've done like ten of these live podcasts, by the way, and you guys always have the best questions. This. So thank you, by the way. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Um, I guess I'm just curious about how these two theories synthesize with one another, and maybe the whole idea is that, like, the function is... No, I mean, I mean, like, why wouldn't they? But the idea that maybe each of these functions is something that the culture is an organism as a whole outside of all of our individuality, and suicide actually serves, either in your case, to help the culture or leadership in the same way, and whether or not those two things are connected, like whether or not leadership and the failure of which is going to propel you to suicide. But yeah, I guess the whole idea is like, how is this serve if a culture is an organism as a whole instead of just us being individuals? Well, Kristen? So actually, um, a lot of leaders, not a lot, I don't know what the percentage is, I don't have any numbers on that, but some leaders do end up killing themselves um, when they fail as leaders. Um, and so that could be like a costly apology thing. Uh, that could be, it could also just be like a social, uh, they have, it's either you kill yourself or will kill you. So take it into your own hands. Um, and we see that too in some of the animal systems of leadership when like an alpha male, like in some primate societies is deposed. Um, it usually comes after a physical confrontation. He might be badly wounded. Um, a lot of times that guy just goes off on his own um, basically goes off to die. And maybe he'll make it, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll find another group, maybe he won't. Yeah. But what, what about, like, Branch Davidian, where, uh, some, or, or where someone, a leader, is just getting everyone to kill them? <laughs> like, hey, follow me, off the cliff, everybody. Good uh, question. Who knows? That People might be a byproduct. There. Could be a byproduct. <laughs> it could be that they are some... I mean, it could be delusional. It could be all sorts of things. Well, I, I, that's what I think about... Um, in talking about this, when we talk about uh, something like suicide and the evolutionary, I mean, it just seems like there's so many other factors. With you know, it, this is kind of a big controversy with the NFL when what what what's his name um, with the brain damage off himself and and did it so that they could yeah yeah junior sale so. 
there, there could be something abnormally happening with and suicide brain damage, isn't one drug thing addiction. Either. Yeah, it's not like so. I mean, there's evidence for the inclusive fitness model. There's evidence for the bargaining model. There's evidence for costly apology. Um, and there's evidence that people just kill themselves because they don't want someone else to kill them. I mean, so it's not like it's just this one homogenous uh, thing. It's it's you know um, different circumstances might have different evolutionary explanations. Um, although I will say I think like these kind of cult uh, these cult situations where people um, are like end up killing themselves they're actually pretty rare. I mean the more common suicidal behavior is much more right. likely to be someone who's depressed, someone who's facing some difficult like life circumstances. That's interesting the idea of someone killing themselves before like someone else kills them. That's an oddly stubborn <laughs> behavior, like really <laughs> ego driven. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to risk it. I mean, do you don't know what they're going to do, so you might as well do it yourself and do it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is euthanasia legal in here? In Oregon. Is it here? In Oregon, yeah. Oh, heroes. I, I mean, honestly, that, that's the thing. Like, what even constitutes suicide? I mean, I just had my, um, I just had my grandmother... Uh, pass away like in 94 or 95 or something like that and and to me it was like she hasn't been my grandmother in my mind for like three years because it's just she had dementia and uh and, and you know just a completely changed person and it seems like uh yeah you know we we put um we put animals down when they're suffering and it, it was but for it, some reason, we insist people have to suffer. Yeah. Because we value yeah. life, quote-unquote, that much for its own sake. So, if you kind of put it in that context, if, if, if suicide... Is, I, mean, I mean, this is a big basis of suicide is uh, eliminating a feeling of, of suffering that is so unmanageable and painful that you just want the pain to end. It doesn't seem like that necessarily needs an evolutionary function. If, if, if pain has an evolutionary function and then pain can sometimes go so poorly, especially when we're talking about something like old age where you already spread your genes and evolution doesn't care about you when you're old anyway and you're falling apart, um, like why endure it? And, but a point to that, um, in fact, many people who are suffering part of, not just are they suffering, but they also will say, and I don't want to be a burden on my family. Um, so that's a factor, too, that comes up. Um, it's not unusual at all. You know, I was thinking earlier, too, and I'll, I'll get to another question. We, we do need to start wrapping up in a moment. Um, regarding the idea of an honest indicator when, when people um, have a failed attempt or, or are it's just kind a, of faking. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't say faking. I mean, they, uh, quote unquote, like faking in, in some people's minds. Um, right. But it is, in that sense, it's honest in terms of displaying. And maybe they might actually, in fact, feel the despair to not want to be alive. Um, we don't entirely understand the motivation of suicide. That's obviously a very difficult thing to get at, um, motivation in general, um, and especially motivation behind something like suicidal behavior is very difficult to ascertain. Well, I mean, the point I was going to make is about how I, I think one of the troubling things, um, and uh, you know, I, having been someone that has felt 
Uh, so I, I think I think most people have, but uh, ha- having gone through a period of time where I was contemplating it, it uh, I don't think people are necessarily all that open with their intentions. If you're contemplating suicide, you're not necessarily going around advertising that. And so, certainly if you go and you like cut your wrists and you know that, well, I'm cutting them horizontally or whatever, so it's not actually going to take... Um, that that's like a very honest cry for for help, but on the deliberate self harm spectrum as well, um, same arguments can be made for deliberate self harm. But but so so much of it is is really kept to itself, uh, like like so much of it is secretive. Mm-hmm. So well, so the ideational period is probably very secretive. Um, and you might even be thinking like, how are people going to respond? Maybe they're just going to reject me. Maybe it'll make things worse. Maybe they'll think I'm faking it. Um, or just wanting attention, um, which is a problem. Um, but, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> uh, well, if, if suicide's about kind of advertising, then why aren't people advertising more? Like, why are, why are people... I think they advertise a lot. Really? Uh, I guess I am talking about, but I'm talking about, like, uh, well in the past. But, but, I certainly wasn't talking that, about it in the moment And this is something that's so difficult to ascertain. I mean, if right. someone's being secretive about it, that, then we can't really get at that information, except for maybe, like, post-haste. Right. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's a good question. And maybe it's just the case, it could be the case that they, they're in a tough spot right now, but they see... They know their situation is going to change in a few months. They know their situation is going to change in a couple of years. So they don't want to draw attention to it because they know everything will be fine versus those who aren't so sure if everything will be fine. Well, in small-scale society, wouldn't just withdrawing from group activities in and of itself yeah. would be a really this, big signal? Yeah. So right. You, know, you can lock yourself in your room or we can all just like go, you know, go offline. Nobody might not notice it. In the case of a small small scale society, that would be a huge signal. Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Depression. That makes I mean, sense. depression alone is also uh, many. Uh, so Ed Hagen argues it's also a bargaining model. It's it really has the same effect, except uh, lower signaling in that case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing shit, everybody, <laughs> and until. Until someone helps me out here, I am definitely not. Yeah, that's huh. That's interesting. Okay, let's do let's do one one more, uh, unless there's we do potentially have time for two more questions if you're like I absolutely need to ask. But yeah, I was wondering what kind of suicide model would be represented by just uh, smoking and drinking or riding your bicycle dangerously. Does the that... risky, be- I mean, that gets into so there are so many evolutionary models about risky behavior. Uh, I don't. All right, one begin. more hour, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, but many people, it could be that that's some sort of bargaining behavior. Like, oh, look how risky I look. I don't even like value my own life. Um, look at what I'm doing, uh, signaling to other people. It's a possibility. It could, but it could also be like, uh, so males are more likely to engage in risky behavior for like sexual competition to show off that they've got some high that they're very high quality. Um, so there's many things that could be converging on these very, on these particular behaviors. Um, all right, do one more? All right. How uh, prevalent was suicide prior to organized religion where they made it a very negative? Was it more or less? Uh, if we can just blame organized religion for suicidal, patterns. Um, I do. I blame that, organized that, 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 that would be terrific. 
Um, so actually, in, in in Catholic countries and Muslim countries, the suicide uh, completion rate is extremely low. Whether that's due to actual um, because in those religions you go to hell if you kill yourself, and then like the community is like, oh, that guy, like the family gets, you know, there's some stigma. There's a lot of stigma around it in Catholic and Muslim countries. Um, so whether people, the suicide rates are actually low or whether people are just not talking about it or categorizing that way, we don't really know. Um, it, it is more common in Protestant countries, so I don't know what's going on there. Because you don't go to hell. You still go to heaven. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I want to say as we're wrapping up, I, I do think that uh, I think that it's sometimes easy just in case if there's people that are listening that are uh, having a hard time and which we're all fucking having a hard time but if you're having a particularly hard time and you are feeling suicidal it is uh being in that moment it is easy to like convince yourself that that reality is real and that that is like a functional uh and choice whereas it might just be some sort of chemical imbalance and you may not be benefiting <laughs> your family and all of that so um and also, um, I still blame uh, Catholicism for uh, most of suicide, um, <laughs> and my most of the thoughts in my own life. But um, other than that, I want to say that uh, I I'm so happy that you. Uh, do, doing things like this and becoming, making myself uh, a leader. <laughs> Uh, to bring people information is something that has given my life a whole lot of purpose. And so I, I very much appreciate all of you coming out and supporting this. How about a hand for Kristen and Zach, everybody? And I imagine they'll probably, maybe they can stick around for a few minutes at the bar and answer any questions that you guys might have um, but you guys were absolutely wonderful I hope you uh, learned some things and had some interesting new thoughts of your own and uh, thanks for coming out to the Here We Are podcast everybody thank you all 300 of you sexy people All right, everybody, no episode next week as, unfortunately, the um, the episode from the Psychedelic Science, the audio that I got off of the soundboard is complete garbage, and I'm trying to find, I think it was recorded on uh, through some other outlets as well, so I'm trying to get the audio for that, and I'm in New York this week, if you're hearing this uh, in time, um, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, Tuesday, May 30th. New Brunswick, New Jersey, the following day, Asbury Park, and New Jersey on June 1st, and then Manchester, New Hampshire next week at the end of the month. I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Athens, Georgia, Asheville, North Carolina, and then I'm uh, kind of, the, the tour's the tours coming to an end, maybe adding one or two more dates, but uh, pretty much I'm going to have July and August off to get back caught back up on this podcast before um before fall really uh starts picking up and we'll uh try to get a bunch more in the bank um this tour uh doing this this tour and now the documentary and this podcast all at the same time has been stressful and exciting um but uh yeah i'm, I'm gonna be 
hopefully getting some interviews in New York and Boston um, <clears throat> this week. I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants at the moment. So I appreciate your guys' patience and thank you for all of your generous donations on Patreon. Um, that helps me out a lot more so I can uh, uh, pay my assistant for more hours to help me out so I can get more things done. Um, and as well as uh, contributing to the documentary. So, um, any little bit that you can give there is in- incredibly helpful. Um, no big deal. If, uh, if, um, if you're broke like I am, uh, you know, don't worry about it, but whatever you do to spread the word and review the podcast and everything like that is, uh, is plenty. Uh, just wanted to, um, thank you guys that have been able to contribute in whichever way you're able to do that. Uh, so I will see you in two weeks and hopefully be a, a bit more caught up by that time. I, I've been trying to get some really big, exciting guests, and that takes, um, it takes me more effort to get people who are that much busier. And so we'll see what happens. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.